Good morning, everybody. Okay, so I am going to talk about fairy tales. And we're going, to, we're going to go at it a couple ways. I come to fairy tales through Jungian psychology, so I'm going to explain a little bit about that. Then we're going to talk about um, The Handless Maiden and Briar Rose and The Writing Life. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts things about um, using fairy tales and stories like that in your work. So my title is Once Upon a Time Last Tuesday. And I have to tell you that that's borrowed from Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who wrote Women Who Run With Wolves, which one is one of the most amazing useful to your life books that you will ever find in this world. And she says that her Aunt Edna always started a tale that way. She'd say, listen, dearie, once upon a time last Tuesday. And the reason I like that so much is because so many of us these days have lost track of the great stories whether they're fairy tales or myths or Bible stories, the great transpersonal stories are alive. Um, but most people these days don't think, you know, that Sleeping Beauty has anything to do with them. But it does. Um, fairy tales are like myths. They rise up out of some of our deepest, strongest human ways of being and ways of living. And they can be turned to as <coughs> maps for our actual lives when we don't know what to do. So, um, <clears throat> so let me just make a quick, give you quick little examples of how fairy tales can be, can be useful before I go on and talk about the, the Jungian things. Um, there's a book by a man named Bruno Bettelheim called The Uses of Enchantment. He's a child psychologist. And he says that children who aren't rationally developed yet run into all kinds of conflicts, all kinds of things that are too big for them that they can't deal with in a rational manner. And so they need other ways to cope with it. So fairy tales provide for children a way to deal with those kinds of conflicts on an unconscious level. For example, when a little guy reads a story about Jack who outsmarts the giant every time and wins, he knows, not rationally, but in his body then, he knows there is such a thing as the little guy winning over the grown-ups. He's not there yet, but the story, he can take that story in and on an unconscious level, um, get something he needs from it. Because he knows that there is such a thing as that. Now, Betelheim is talking about children, but I say, who among us has yet run out of things that they are not able to deal with rationally. 
<laughs> I think, um, you know, not me. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay. So, and on a less subtle level than that, just think about how long it takes you to learn things. How many times do you, have you heard yourself say, when will I learn? How many times do I have to do this? Well, in the fairy tales, it's always three times. It always takes three times to learn things. So don't feel bad about that because that is a human thing. It takes three times. Um, and how about the hero who is generous? The hero who is generous always succeeds. When you're reading a fairy tale and the hero gives food to the birds, we'll give it to the birds, and the hero gives food to the birds, you know he's made it. You know he's going to make it. And the one who doesn't, you know that, um, you know, he's got red hot shoes waiting for him at the end of the, at the, end of the story. Now this has a lot to do with, crea I, this stuck with me as I was thinking about the talk because I've been reading a book by Twyla Swarp, who's a choreographer, called um, The Creative Habit. I'm not sure that's right. It's The Creative Something. And she says in there, if you want to be lucky in your creative life, be generous. Yes. And I was leafing through um, some of Theodore Redke's notebooks. And they're just little, little squibs of things that occur to him. And he says at some point, take one day off a week to be generous-minded. Did you say Twyla? Thwarp, T-H-W-A-R-P. And then there's the kindness to animals. Um, Marie-Louise von Franz, who is just a brilliant writer about fairy tales, in the Jungian tradition, says that of all of the variations of fairy tales, any, any tale can have literally hundreds of variations. The same core story rises up over time and over place <coughs> all over the world. This is one of the ways we know that they are deeply human stories. She says, nothing will be the same in a story from one place to the other, except that if there is a helpful animal and the hero is kind to the helpful animal, he will prevail. That is the only universal in fairy tales. <coughs> and if for animal you understand instinct and sort of native bodily wisdom, well, there you go. The keys to the kingdom are right there. Um, Marie, Louise, Von, V-O-N, Franz, F-R-A-N-Z. Okay. So, I come to fairy tales through being interested in Jungian psychology. And I am not an analyst. I am not, I'm self-taught in this regard, so 
you know, just that. But I'm a believer. So I want to give you some thumbnail explanations of the concepts that I'm using when I'm thinking and reading fairy tales. So these are just three basic ingredients of Jungian thought about psychology in general. One of the core concepts is individuation. All that individuation is, is the process of becoming whole. It's the process of integrating all of the parts of yourself and living from that wholeness. Think about, think about how many times you've gone into some space or another and had to check part of yourself at the door when you came in. You know, you walk through the door and you think, I'm not going to talk about my kids. Don't talk about your kids. Or you think, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to talk like that. I'm not going to say that word. Um, individuation is the opposite of that. It's bringing your whole self to the table. Even those parts that we are afraid of or have, taught to be, have been taught to be ashamed of. And Jungians call this shadow material because so often in our lives it stays in the dark. We keep it down and we don't look at it. We keep it in the unconscious as best we can. But the shadow sometimes also holds our very best parts. Can you say again, the, redefine the shadow material? Those parts of ourselves that either we're afraid of or we've been taught to be ashamed of um, or we just plain don't like. Some we are completely unconscious of. That's why it's in the unconscious. We don't know that we're acting in certain ways. Okay, so integration of that shadow material is part of the path of individuation. Okay. Jungians speak in terms of masculine and feminine energies. This has nothing to do with gender at all. Um, these are types of energies that all of us have in us. We all have masculine and feminine energies in us. They are only apparently oppositional kinds of energies. They are not truly oppositional, but in our culture, we love these oppositional dichotomies, and so they have devolved into this, into this way of talking about it. You can use any pair of dichotomies that you want to talk about these two kinds of energies. Some people call it being and doing. You can talk in terms of transcendence and imminence, stillness and motion, body and spirit, you know, pick your, pick your the one that m makes the most sense to you in your body. Now, Jungians use 
these two terms for these energies because in dreams they come up those energies are represented by masculine and feminine figures the unconscious communicates with us in various ways one of the ways is through dreams so and the unconscious speaks in the language of metaphor so aren't we lucky <laughs> honestly that's our language so many people have completely lost the language of metaphor that they don't they can't um, they can't make that leap but they but they come up that way so that's why the Jungians use it and it can be a little distressing if you lose track of the of the idea that you know we're, we're never talking about gender so when I talk about the feminine I'm talking about the creative the creative force and the creative energy that doesn't mean men don't have it it's just that when it comes up through the unconscious that's how it comes up so the unconscious is kind of a placeless timeless <coughs> something um, a part of our psyche and it holds the shadow material and it is unconscious we don't know it but we need to be able to draw on that in order to get to that wholeness not being in touch with that part of the psyche not being willing to hear messages from the unconscious is like refusing to know your whole story it's like um, you do, it's not going to have all your powers without that so the unconscious comes through most people are most familiar with the unconscious coming through in dreams so let me just give you a little example I think this is a very fairly common dream I'm not sure how common among women I'm not sure among men maybe you can tell me you dream of a baby often a little girl baby and you've had this baby and you forgot her you forgot her and you can't find her and all of a sudden you remember that you haven't fed her hmm. or she is in some kind of distress and you're trying to help her and you can't get to her you can't keep her head out of the water or or something like that so what's happening oftentimes in a dream like that what the unconscious is telling you is that there is some newborn creative force that is trying to come through you and you are not paying attention and you're going to lose it. So those dreams are so distressing. Um, and that's why the unconscious is trying to get your attention to tell you, here she is, you better take care of her or else, you know, she'll be gone. Um, in the body, the unconscious speaks through the body. So just to think about how 
think about the last time in another kind of school, not this kind of school, where you studied for finals or you stayed up all night writing a paper and you, you are only pulling on one part of yourself. You're only pulling on your brain trying to do that thing, not your whole self, not your body. You're eating, you know, whatever, and you're smoking and drinking whatever, trying to, to get there. How sick your body gets, how you get that sick feeling right here, because you're not operating out of your whole self. Your unconscious is telling you, um, you know, your brain is not the boss of everybody. We're here too. We need stuff. Um, And the unconscious talks to us through the great transpersonal stories. Whether they are fairy tales or myths or Bible stories, whatever they are, sacred stories, hymns um, that arise through all human cultures with certain patterns intact because the same, the same dynamic will appear all over the world in all different times and places. So that's telling us that we as a species are hardwired for this pattern. This is a pattern that we will go through. And these are available to us. Oftentimes, they are patterns of um, passage, you know, and the world is badly in need of, of people to give the stories and the templates and the ways and the rituals of passage to young people so that they know how to get from here to there. How do you have a hope of, you know, of, for the future? when young, nobody pulls a young person aside and says, listen, honey, which you should always listen to when anybody <laughs> says that. Really lean forward. Listen, honey, you know, grown people don't do that. So we, we need that. Okay. So let's, um, well, let me pause and ask. I'm going to start talking in a minute about the Handless Maiden. So, but before I do, are there any questions or anything that y'all want to say before we go on? Hmm? Um, I was wondering while you were talking, um, do you think, uh, do you think um, in times gone past when you had the, when you had the parents and grandparents living at home and they would take care of the children? Oh, yes tell them the stories that that was part of the transmission and do you think that's been reduced by nursing homes and yes yes um the crone figure is i believe in human history on the rise is coming back the feminine divine the crone the wise woman it is her job um it is our job to keep the stories alive because we need them. I mean, for me, it's a deep commitment. It's one of my deep commitments as a writer um, to tell those stories. It's, 
it's a way that we have of you don't always choose what you're going to write about, right? I mean, it happens sometimes, but but it matters very much what you write about. And where you can choose, choose. And I choose to try and make images and stories about what can still be right in the world. So that you can see there is such a thing as people being kind Mm -hmm. (coughs) instead of the sort of theater of cruelty that you see on TV. Just a really quick question. Uh, Can you tell me the author name again of Women Who Run With Wolves? Clarissa. Pinkola, P-I-N-K-O-L-A, Estes, E-S-T-E-S. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. So, The Handless Maiden. This is a very old story. This is one of the oldest stories. And it's a story about feminine wounding and healing. Now, remember when we say feminine, we aren't saying women. (coughs) We're saying feminine energy. So where we say feminine, we're talking about the, since we are coming to the story as writers, we think, we can think of feminine in terms of the creative life that we all want, that we all want to have. So it's a story of wounding and healing inside that life. In the, in the masculine-feminine dichotomy, when we're talking about the creative life, the feminine energy is the creative impulse, and the masculine energy is what protects it and brings it out into the world. Hmm. So right away, you see, you have to have both. You need to develop both. You can write beautiful poems, and put them in your drawer, and you will not be complete. You can want to be a poet in the worst way, and wear the clothes, and walk the walk, and talk the talk, but if you are not doing the work, if you're not doing the real work that makes you sit still and quiet and do that, it won't be, you won't be complete, and the work won't be, won't be complete. Okay, so, Let's start with the maiden. So, if you try to think that a fairy tale is like a dream, and you are everyone in the fairy tale, what would the maiden be? The creative impulse. The creative impulse. The young creative impulse that is trying to get out into the world. She's a maiden, so we know that she is, she's not all the way into the world yet. Okay. The parents, now oftentimes in fairy tales, the, the old ones are representing what has come before and is finished. 
Remember at the beginning of, of The Handless Maiden, um, the miller is broke. He's poor. He's, he's in a bad way. Whatever he's been doing is not working anymore. Something new has to happen. And he's a miller. There are many millers in fairy tales and folk tales. And one of the reasons is the mill, as I understand it, is a very early machine. So work that had to be done slowly and laboriously and by hand now can be done all at once, done quickly, without all of that kind of work. And as we all know, time is money. Um, you can make a lot more money that way, and it's not so much work. There's something tricky about that. And it puts the miller at an advantage over the other people in the village. So there's the possibility, and Miller's kind of a slippery figure in a fairy tale. The devil is the, is the predator. The devil is the thing that is attracted to light and attracted to energy, but is jealous of it and so hates it, and so would rather destroy it than have someone else have that light and have that energy. The king represents the reigning social norms. And in The Handless Maiden, we have a conflation. The king's mother is a conflation of the um, Mother Crone figure from the Maiden-Mother Crone trio. And she is the wise woman. She is the one who is far-seeing. She is the one who can see, see things. Okay. So, let's think a little bit about those figures and our enterprise here. So, the Maiden part is easy, right? I mean, we're all here because we are all creative forces that want to be born. We all want that. That's what we are. That's our job. That's what we carry in the world and into the world. Okay, how about the father, the miller part? Which part of you in your writing life might be the miller? The part that self-sabotages, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Holding on to old ways of doing things. Holding on to old ways of doing things, which is ironic given the mill wheel. Maybe being unwilling to do the work that you know that you have to do, wanting yes. to find a shortcut or yes. an easy way out. Who doesn't want a shortcut? I mean, we all do. This is a deeply human thing. We all would like to not have to work for what we get. but. You don't get something for nothing. It made me think when I was thinking about this, about Irene's, has a poem somewhere where she says, I really want, look, I really want to get away with something. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I felt that. Impoverished thinking, too. Impoverished thinking, too. Yes. Um, 
you can't go cheap. Um, you can't go cheap with your work. And it's easy, and there are lots. Um, my impression is, which I can't back up in any way, but my impression is that there are lots of people who, when I look at their work, I think they really went cheap, and yet they won mm -hmm. the prize. And I think, <laughs> and then when you didn't win, they send you that person's book, and you look at it and you think, oh, again, you know. So, okay. So the devil. The devil is complicated. Jungians believe, yes. <laughs> Jungians believe that all of us have in our psyches a predator that belongs, that is still with us from our most primitive, <coughs> primal evolutionary stages. The predator does, he likes it the way it is. It does not want you to change anything. It does not want you to grow. It does not want you to do anything hard. That sounds, it says things like, that sounds very complicated. <laughs> and that wouldn't be my first choice. <laughs> you know, aren't you tired? Are you really you gonna know? wear that? Are you, yeah. <laughs> Does your mother know what you're doing? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Probably. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the TV. I freely confess, but only among you all, that the TV is, is one of my predators. I can't watch TV in moderation. <laughs> my sister. <laughs> Okay, so you know, you probably have a rather immediate sense of your predator. Um, the king, we all have some sense, we can't help but have some sense of what, for example, a poem should look like. What a poet should talk like. Um, what is serious work that can be taken seriously? Uh, that's a killer. Um, so the king represents those kinds of things, the norms that are out there saying this, not that. You know, straighten up and fly right. <laughs> And, um, and the king's mother, who understands what's going on as we go along, is the native wisdom of the body. It's the thing that happens to you when you're sitting down to write and the phone rings and you pause a minute and you know you ought not to answer that phone. Because your body, you feel something in your body. Don't you just sort of do, something happens in your body and, and you can listen to it or not. 
you can write or you can do that the rest of the day and that. So at the heart of the story of the Handless Maiden is betrayal. I think betrayal for all of us is one of our deepest, most painful experiences, and it comes to all of us. It, it has to come to all of us so that we don't stay in a state of innocence, so that we recognize ambiguity, so that we recognize in ourselves ambivalence and our dark side and our light side, our willing side and our unwilling side. So what the miller does is he makes a deal with the devil. And we all, if you think a minute, think about what your deal with the devil might, might be. That betrays your writing life. Um, just in the course of a day. It could be picking up the phone. It could be watching Netflix when you could go for a walk or sit on the porch and listen to the birds. It's, it's anything that feels easier than the thing that you mean to do, the thing that part of you means to do, but another part of you is coiled up in the back of your brain saying, eh, nobody's watching. You know, go ahead and do, do whatever you want. Sometimes it's a trick, sometimes we know we're doing it. And this is important because the predator keeps us from what is at our core. The predator keeps us from growing from our core. And think about um, writer's block. The reason I find these figures so powerful and helpful is because they give you a figure. They give you an image to work from that can help you in times like that. Um, I mean, it's one thing to sit down and, and turn on the TV and you're doing battle with the TV remote, but it's another thing to speak to that predator and say, how dare you speak to me that way? I will not sit still for you. I will not sit still <coughs> for you. And you do your work. I think for everyone, but also just because we're, um, we're writers, it's easier to do battle with an image, with something figured, than a vague sense of boredom or um, attraction to something that you don't even, you know, don't even want. So much of the story, so you all know the story, right? The devil comes, makes the deal. The father says, I'm very sorry, but, you know, we're going to have to chop off your hands. <laughs> and people who know about such things, who have studied many variants of the story, say 
that there is no version of the story in which the maiden refuses. She lets the father do it every time. Partly, at least, because the betrayal has to come. Um, but so there is the wounding. There is the wounding. The new creative thing that's trying to come through, it's beset by betraying fathers, betraying status quo. The odds are against it every time. To the point where her hands are cut off. And your hands, remember that the, those Leonard Cohen lines, I don't, I think it's a thousand kisses deep. Um, you lose your grip and then you slip into the masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Your hands, the hands in the story, are your grip on your life. It's how you touch the world. So when the father chops off her hands, he makes it impossible for her to get a grip on her life and have her life in the world. So there is the wound. Mm -hmm. Can you say something about why she willingly binds her arms behind her back? The loss of the hands is one thing, but I find the binding yeah. arms. Well, maybe this will, maybe this will, I think it's connected to what I'm about to say. That's okay. It's not directly, but we can, maybe we can draw the connection. So this is the wounding part that has happened, and we all experience it in our writing life. So the rest of the story is the story of the healing of this wound. So what does she do? The father comes to her because ultimately, you know, the devil can't get her. She knows enough um, to cry on her hands and, and do the things that she does, which are probably remnants of old um, rituals of passage. Um, the father comes to her and says, oh my gosh, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, um, but now we have all of this wealth, and the least that I can do is keep you in comfort and wealth for the rest of your life. And to me, what happens next is the most moving moment in the fairy tale. She says, no, I cannot stay here. So she does not stay in the place of wounding. She leaves. She's not making a deal with the devil. So, Doug, maybe that's part of why she has her arms bound behind her. She's totally not making a deal with the devil. She's not letting anything be easy. She is... Yes. On the other side, is she's already committed to God. She's already committed to something deeper than just her father. That's a part of her yes. character at the beginning. Yes. And I think that that is part of why she can do what can yes. do all this and trust in it, even though it will. Yes. The wounding really does happen, but it's not 
it, it doesn't start <coughs> not the ultimate. Else, right? Yes. There's something else. Yeah. Already. Yeah. And divine help comes to her at least twice in the in the story. Did you want to say something, Richard? Okay. Um, so she wanders. There is always betrayal. There is always wandering. This is the time, maybe in your writing life, when you go up to your room or you sit down at your desk and you would give anything to write anything, if only you knew what to write. But you're lost in that moment. You're in the wilderness. I'm going to have to speed up here a little bit. Um, but there will always be wandering. Then there's a partial solution with the king who gives her silver hands. His logic is flawless. But we are not in the land of logic here. He says, I'll give you these hands. They'll be as beautiful, they'll be more beautiful than real hands. I'm the king, you'll be the queen. You won't even have to work anyway. You don't even need hands. I mean, it's rational. It makes sense, but it is not an answer. It is a masculine solution to a feminine problem. Only the feminine can heal the feminine. And it seems that the creative life requires this kind of cyclical wandering and this kind of cyclical waiting to come through. Now we pathologize that and call it writer's block. And we think we're not working and we say all kinds of bad things about that, how we hate it. And we do. We can be forgiven for that. You know, we suffer when we're not in that place. I think it was Hayden Carruth said, poet's happiness is or are their poems. Our poems are our happiness. Um, so when we don't have access to them, it hurts us. But it can hurt us less when we understand that we are on a wheel, we are on a cycle. The writing life follows the same cycle. It follows the laws of nature, same laws of nature as everything else in the world. So of course, there are going to be cycles of plenty and cycles of decrease. Did you say that last increase? Cycles of, cycles of increase and cycles of decrease. Times when there is plenty and times when there is, is nothing. And um, here's a little quote from Estes from the Women Who Run With Wolves, which I found right before Christmas time, which was a gift. <laughs> She says, the absolutely wrong thing to attempt when we've lost focus is to rush about struggling to pack it all back together again. 
Rushing is not the thing to do. Sitting and rocking is the thing to do. <laughs> you have permission. Sitting and rocking is the thing to do. Patience, peace, and rocking renew ideas. Just holding the idea and the patience to rock it are what some women might call a luxury. Wild woman says it's a necessity. So writing life, like everything else in life, is a cycle. And sometimes you have to wait. Waiting is not the opposite. In our work, waiting is not the opposite of the work. Waiting is an unavoidable part of the work. When I learned this, I got so much happier. <laughs> and I have done it. I have a rocking chair in my, in my writing room upstairs. And so one day I was just feeling so cranky because, you know, I was so jangled. And I thought, fine, I'll sit in the rocking chair. <laughs> This is my permission to rock. Yes. <laughs> but you know, there's that predator. Why do I resist that? Because the predator is telling me, shouldn't you be working? What time is it now? Isn't it almost lunchtime? And then what? You know? Don't. Can't do that. So, you have to wait. And you're not waiting in the way the world at large views waiting. It is a different thing. It's a different thing altogether. And it's much easier to bear those dry moments when you are in understanding that you are on a wheel and the wheel <coughs> is going to turn. And pretty soon it will be your turn again. So rock, rock and do things that are good for your soul while you wait. Because that's the, kind of, that's the kind of interim activity that will help you write. It won't help you write to take all the books out of your bookshelf and dust them and put them back in and clean out your file cabinet. I mean, it'll help something, but it won't get you probably into the deep place. So you touch the deep things as you go by them <coughs> through your days. I just have to go back to the increase and decrease, plenty and lack thereof. Does she, I haven't read, I read very little of that book, and I've had it for a while, but does she talk about that culturally? Does she apply it to, I mean, we certainly must be in a cycle of Does she talk, does she apply? No, she is mostly, she's a psychologist, and so she refers over and over again throughout the book to the larger, to the culture at large and how it operates against everything that she says, basically. Yes. Yeah, it's a cycle, so don't, don't worry. It doesn't mean that your first work was a fluke. How many of you wrote your first poem and you thought, well, that was just a fluke. I can't do that again. No. Round and round. The wheel's on the bus, you know, if you want. Yeah. yeah. 
Even put in your writing room, if you know that this is a struggle that you have, put things in your writing room that are round. Find a picture of a wheel and put it in your room. Put things around you that will say to you over and over again, you are, here's the great round, and we're all in it. Okay, I'm going to give you a real short version of, the, of Briar Rose and then um, a few nuts and bolts things. Actually, let me give you the nuts and bolts things first. So if, in case we run short on time, I want you to have that for sure. So, um, so the stories are, are rich in material. They are rich in material for us because they are deep human stories. But they are also can be very helpful to us in very practical ways with things we are trying to write. <clears throat> Oftentimes, they bring some kind of unique authority or attraction all on their own, just on account of what they are. So, for example, often when I'm talking about Kettle Bottom, which is my second book, there are, there are myths combined with stories of coal miners' lives in, those, in that book. So, I speak about that in terms of the myth, although many people think it has nothing to do with our lives today, the Greek myth. People don't even mostly know them anymore. Um, they have a high cultural authority. You know when you have a poem and it has before you and it has Menelaus in the title that it's somebody serious wrote that poem. <laughs> and that's a serious poem, right? And you know if you have a, a poem about a coal miner on your page, no. Who's going to read that? If you write that poem, who's going to buy that book? So when you put the two things together, what happens is they each can borrow something from the other. The, the coal miner's story can borrow some of the cultural authority of the myth or the fairy tale or whatever it is um, because it becomes, at that point, <coughs> Not just the story of a coal miner, but the story of um, Prometheus or whoever you want, in whatever it is. It's not just that. And you reveal that aspect of this lived experience. And the myth stays alive because it's just not an old Greek story. It's a lived experience that is still alive and relevant. So the two come together and both stay alive. So this is something that those great transpersonal stories can give um, to, to a piece of work. Um, and also, if 
you've got anything in you like me where you want to be able to say what's right in the world and pass on these stories and present these patterns of ways in which people can live toward their wholeness, then there you go. There's the pattern for it right in front of you. Um, another thing, another way in which I think they can be good is that contemporary sensibility is very cynical. And it's especially cynical of the single individual voice. We were talking about this a little bit this morning. Um, have you ever heard, not here, of course, but have you ever heard somebody in a workshop read a poem and say, and why do I care? That's what this, that's what this contemporary sensibility is. Lack of authority of the individual voice to speak about great things. It refuses the authority of, ex of individual experience. Um, some stories are so shared, that's what transpersonal means. They transcend the personal. They are stories that are too big for one voice. And when you put anything from one of the big transpersonal stories into a poem where you need to talk about something like good and evil, you have a, you know, it's the perfect vehicle for that. There's already a sensibility, an expectation ingrained in us that Menelaus is going to be serious. You know, it's a big, it's a big story. So, <clears throat> you might not understand sort of consciously why that's so, but, um, but it works. For example, I, and another thing about that is the third point I want to make, and then I'll tell a tiny story, is, has to do with questions of privacy. Sometimes, you need to tell a very big story and either it does not turn into a poem on your page when you try and use your real details, your real details, um, or you need to protect your own privacy or someone else's. And that story can oftentimes be told in terms of a fairy tale in fairy tale language or in mythic language. And you can say the true thing with another vocabulary. And I had a friend who told me a story, and I wanted very much to write his poem, but his privacy absolutely had to be protected. And I tried very hard because I was so moved. I had all of the heat for it. Um, and Every time I tried to write it on the page, it just flopped there on the page. It didn't, it didn't work as art, as poetry. And I just happened to look across the, my room at my bookshelf where there was a book by Marie-Louise von Franz, and I thought, once upon a time, ah, and there it was. And there it was. It gave me the distance from the personal details that I needed to tell the story in its truest way. 
So that, that piece started out, once upon a time, there was a boy who was raised by mean words. So it's, they're good for that. There are a couple things you have to watch out for. As my Aunt Betty once told me, who was my crone, my wise woman in my family, she said, don't go cheap. <laughs> you can't go cheap with fairy tales. Lots of people do. And that's why, even though it made me, have, made me talk so much, I, I said all the things that I said in the beginning. Because if you're going to use a story like this, you need to understand it at the level at which it's going to connect with your story. The surface details, you know, <clears throat> if they stay on the surface, it, it is not going to work. And there's, there's almost nothing in a fairy tale that doesn't mean something. You could write a book about the Handless Maiden and not exhaust it. Okay. Here are some things that you might borrow from a fairy tale or from a tradition like that in general. It can be anything. It can be anything at all. Sometimes you want a fairy tale to structure a whole story, and sometimes you just need to pick out a little detail. So you can borrow the diction of a fairy tale. The diction. Like the little bits of orality that are scattered through fairy tales that tell you that it's a told story once upon a time, or little things that repeat like da-da-da-da-da, as everyone knows. Fairy tales often repeat things. So you can do like that in a piece, repeat things like that. You can take structures like the, the three tries, the three trials to do everything. That will give a fairy tale type shape to your story that will signal to the reader, even if it's not very conscious, that you're operating on a deeper level than, than you are. There's a charming word, I think it must be a German <coughs> word, called dumbling. D-U-M-M-L-I-N-G. The dumbling is the youngest one. He's the third son. He's usually the innocent one, um, the uninitiated one, let's say, who always, who always um, wins anyway. You know, a helpful animal um, <laughs> you can have in your story. You can just use the title. You can use a bit of language. I've used, I've used um, I'll, I'll read fairy tales, poems, when I do my reading tomorrow night, but like I have one that's titled The Fairest of Them All. And there are certain motifs, like the heart the bargain. Um, so anything can be used that way. They can be in a more generative way. Um, if you read a story and ask yourself the kinds of questions that you might ask if you were looking at a dream, things can happen. For example, um, who was your devil? 
and what was his, and what was the deal? Who was your devil and what was the deal? If you have a story of, of some, say you have a, a betrayal story that you need to write, mm -hmm. the fairy tale um, pattern will work. Think about what your favorite story was when you were a child. Go back and write down for yourself what you remember about that story. Then go back and read the actual story and see what's really in there. And think about what the difference is between the way you remembered it and the way that the story actually is. Who are you? When you first read a story like The Handless Maiden, who are you in the story? What was your test? When were you wandering? Where can you find your cycle of wandering? And I hate to say it, but who chopped off your hands? You know, those are, those are big questions. And they can, they can bring up stories in our individual lives that are maybe too big for a language that's not a transpersonal type language. So it can, it can be helpful sometimes for those kinds of things. Okay. I think we have about 10 minutes, so um, what would you like to... Hmm? The ancestral. <laughs> Didn't you include an ancestral? Yeah, oh, the yeah. Handling of the chaos. Yes. <coughs> yes. That, I mean, I think that she really, um, I, I, I find in that piece a deep understanding of the story. Even though there's something kind of glib about it, but I think it's the, I think it's the language of the time. Um, let me get my, my paper up. Delaney, you want to say anything about that? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I love this poem, and I had loved this poem before thinking about it in this sense, and I didn't know the story of the maiden without hands mm -hmm. before I had read this. Um, I was wondering, is it related to Rumpelstiltskin? Like, or is Rumpelstiltskin a story separate is Rumpelstiltskin's the one with the spindle, right? And but is the maid? I, no, Briar I Rose. It's totally okay. Yeah. Right. No, I know. But I, I was thinking about Rumpelstiltskin in terms of like the devil in the same way because mm -hmm. Rumpelstiltskin stories were always my favorite when I was growing uh -huh. up of like him coming back and being able to take her child and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. So I was, I was thinking about him when I was reading this, but I. I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking. Okay, okay. I gotta find mine. Yeah, I felt like, I felt like that was a good example of, I read that poem as a melding of the story of the Handless Maiden and the women of that time who could not get a grip on their, who were fighting to get a grip on their lives, to have their lives and have their hands. And especially when I think of the, you know, the whole madmen 
time. And the women with silver hands, it just seems um, like such a good image for that, that whole. So is she calling, I think about that book a lot, the book Transformations. It's being written when it begins to be a women's movement. And mm -hmm. Is she transforming those tales for us? Yeah, I think I don't. I don't know if transforms is the right. In a way, it's transforms. In a way, what happens? Yes, it's a revision. When you interact with the stories. Um, when you interact with the stories, many things can happen to them. Just like, say, in a memoir, when you interact with memory, many things will happen yes. to, that, to that memory. So when you are interacting with those stories, you are going to bring your lived experience, or whatever experience it is that you're imagining, together with the story, and you're going to hold those two things together. They are going to be held together as one thing. So both the both of the stories are going to be in a sense transformed. They're living things. They're living things. Um, and so we change the stories. It's not disrespect. I, I read some stories about I read some poems about Leah to a group of young people. And I said something about writing Leah out of that terrible story. Uh, do you all know what I'm talking about? Okay, Rachel and Leah in the Old Testament story. Okay. Um, and I said something about I was trying to write her out of that terrible story. And I was. Um, and I was getting ready to leave, and this young man was coming down the sidewalk with something in his hand, and he gave it to me. And he said, just read this, but later. And I thought, okay, you know, people give you things. So I, <coughs> I read it when I got to the car, and he told me, I think it's okay if I say this, um, I ought not be coming down to West Virginia and talking like that about those stories because I was going to make a lot of people mad. They weren't just stories to people. They were people's religion and they were people's beliefs. And a I should be careful. A young man did this. Like 15. I think he thought he was um, helping me. Okay. I was thinking of the word betrayal when you're talking about allegiance to these stories and how when you get inside oh. them, betrayal can be like a blush, you know, that yeah. in some ways you can reach and kind of reveal what's true in them, yeah. even though it seems as though you're being, there's infidelity to the actuality of the yes. story structure. So I yes. love what you're saying about yeah. going cheap. Yeah, and there's a whole range of possibility when it comes to fidelity. You may stay very close, or you may you may blow it up. Whatever is your pleasure. I was thinking about what you were 
saying about the archetypes and fairy tales. Mm -hmm. um, fairy tales often have a, a female character that then you say represents the creative, right? Mm -hmm. That's one <laughs> way to come into the story. To interpret it. Um, from that standpoint, what is your interpretation then of, say, heroic legends like the Arthurian cycle, where it's kind of, would that be mostly rational mind struggling? I don't know. Aren't there many, like, strong female characters, Morgana, Lefebvre, and Guinevere? Well, they're normally the tricksters. And they normally end up hurting everyone. I mean, I guess that would depend on how you define Lefay, magic. Yeah, I mean, she ends up tricking Arthur into having a child with her, and who ends up killing him because she's cursed him. So. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't really know, um, except to say that legends, heroic legends, are a very different genre than fairy than fairy tales. So I'm I'm not sure how I would try to enter a a piece like that. Um, No attacks are happening. Right, but I'm saying, like, you have the Miller, right, and the uh -huh. devil attacking creativity in the fairy tale, mm -hmm. right? Betraying, and, yeah. And let's not call the masculine feminine. Let's mm -hmm. call them creativity and rationalism, okay? So if we read it the way I think I understand it, you were explaining mm -hmm. it, in the heroic legends, you have then, therefore, by the symbolism of it, the rational being attacked by creativity. And how does that work? It is a, I would, I'm not well read on that, so I'm just operating here. Um, 
it's a move. I would I would describe it not as an attack, but as a move toward wholeness, opening a space in which the two can um, can work together. If you want to know more about that, there is a wonderful book, uh, which I haven't read, but I I know of, <laughs> um, called The Grail Legend, and it was written by Jung's wife, Emma Jung. Oh. Emma Jung and Marie Louise. And she died while she was writing it, and Marie-Louise von Franz finished it for her. Awesome. <laughs> it's got all that stuff in it. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you're talking about, um, when, you, when you're talking about um, Leia, I was thinking about the, um, the the Hebrew tradition of Midrash, which um, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the translation mm -hmm. of the story is, is, is needed. And um, I was also thinking about um, when, when you're talking about the young man's um, reaction to it. I was thinking about equature feminine, where mm -hmm. where it seems like I guess um, <coughs> if, if there if there's a social lack of value for for women's writing or cyclical writing or mm -hmm. something that doesn't end up in a definite place, then mm -hmm. um, I'd imagine that changing that story would be something that they wouldn't like all that much. Yeah. He didn't like it all that much. <laughs> if you're interested in the biblical part, I would poet-wise, I would suggest Alicia O. Stryker and um, Eleanor Wilner. W-I-L-N-E-R. Alicia O. Stryker also has um, uh, biblical scholarship that she's written yes. around those stories in addition to the poems yes. that she's written. So yeah. you can look at her from both. Yeah. Um, different ways of approaching. Yes, you can. Anything else? Ready for coffee? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs>